Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why is it important that we have businesses that are growing? I don't create jobs sitting in Downing Street. It's your business that is creating jobs and opportunities for people up and down the country. So if I want to deliver that vision that I talked about, that vision where every young person can grow up and have an amazing life, right, and where every family can build a better future for themselves, I need businesses to flourish, to grow, to create all those jobs and opportunities and well-paid jobs everywhere in the country. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, Rishi Sunak, like most politicians, is adamant that he can grow the economy by getting businesses to be more productive. But can businesses really grow the economy by themselves if the government just gets out of the way? You might think that by employing more people or creating more widgets or whatever it is you make, you are helping the economy. But there's one big constraint how much money people have to spend. So today, we talk about the one simple truth. The economy is constrained by how much money there is. So how do we get around that? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. So can you actually grow an economy without growing the money supply? So Steve, a friend of mine... I had this conversation, this was months ago now, saying that uh, he is growing the economy because he employs people. His business, we know, it's a bit like Rishi Sunak was saying in that introduction, because his businesses have all gone very well. This is this is a bit, an Australian billionaire friend. Uh, and he says, you know, he creates money for the Australian economy. But is he actually, if the amount of money in the economy is fixed and it changes hands at the same speed. We'll look at the velocity of money and all that sort of stuff. But let's assume money changes hands in the economy at the same speed. And let's say he's not selling overseas and bringing in foreign money, because that obviously is a, an extra source of money. He's just selling domestically. Then the money he is taking away from, the money he's making, I should say, he's taking away from other businesses. Isn't he? Because basically the amount of money that can be spent buying his stuff is determined by the amount of money that people have. So, you know, which is, which is the income. So he can't make money money unless he's taking money away from from another business because there's only so much money to be spent. Yeah, if his bank account's going up and there's a fixed amount of money, or the you know, that's it's, it's start with that assumption first of all, then if his account goes up, somebody else has to go down by precisely as much. And in fact, a little little booklet that you know is being used by that marketing firm to to market the online lectures that I'm giving, Funny Money, I actually make that case with a, a trio of uh, of uh, American billionaires, not, not your Aussie mate, but a few in the Midwest America somewhere, Tom, Dick and Harry, who decide to uh, uh, create their own monetary system. And they're doing a little uh, experiment, but they find they're actually in touch with the with the multiverse through, through their uh, their mate chief researcher, Dr. Strangelove. And, uh, and, and they think, well, we're going to see what happens if you have a, a fixed money supply and you don't allow... Uh, any any creation of money, and they then find it mysterious that when one one of their bank accounts goes up, the other one goes down by precisely as much, and they start accusing each other of fraud and robbery and so on and so forth. But it's just if there's a fixed amount of the stuff, then it can be in one person's account. If one person goes account, somebody else's has to go down. So he's not making money; he's accumulating 
more of the money than other people have. So why do people like Rishi Sunak have a great deal of difficulty with this? Because you think that, you know, or many conventional economists, this idea that businesses can add to the money supply because they are creating more jobs when it's still the same amount of money. So, And if you think about, you know, how we measure GDP, uh, at its base level, uh, it's sometimes based on output and it's sometimes based on expenditure. And it actually really doesn't matter because they should both be the same, shouldn't they? Well, that's the whole idea. I mean, this is one thing which I, when I first tried to bring credit, the role of credit into aggregate demand, which in credit being how the private sector creates many private banks, I started with a, a sort of a starting notion of the GDP being income plus change in debt. Now, it's, that's wrong, but the insight led me to the correct answer, which Michael Hudson and I worked out together, and that is that GDP is effectively turnover of existing money plus new money created either by credit, which is private money creation, or by the government, which is fiat money creation. So you, if, you're, you're, if you don't have either of the latter two happening, then there's just a set amount of money in the economy, isolated from what happens with foreign exchange, uh, exports and imports and, and capital transfers. And, and we'll so get on. on to that. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, but you, the, 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 if his, his bank account's going up, everybody else is going down by precisely the same amount. So when businesses are told by politicians that they are going to get rid of the red tape and that's going to increase their output, it's going to increase their earnings, uh, then it, all it's going to do, that red tape is going to help some um, and some businesses might be more productive. All of this strive for productivity in an economy isn't going to help. You can simplify regulations and uh, and you know do whatever you want to try and make it easier for businesses to succeed. All you'll be doing is helping some businesses, but not all, because there's still, making the same point again, still only the same amount of money to spend. Yeah, I mean, what they're doing, they're talking away, taking away the green red tape and, bra- and bragging about that, but they're taking away the green tape as well. And that's the problem. And if you don't have uh, money, if you if, without fail, you look through history, very few economies have grown for any period of time with also, without also having a growing money stock. So only again, we've got the usual climate change caveat about the, the benefits of a growing economy. But if that's the framework you're working on, and Sunak is obviously working in that framework, then if you want to boost the economy, you've got to boost the supply of money as well. Uh, and the, you have banks that are no longer lending on the anything like the scale they did before the financial crisis which in some ways is a good thing because they're mainly there for speculation rather than investment. But if Sunak is also trying to run a budget surplus, he's he's cutting the green tape as well as cutting the red tape. Well, yeah, because I mean, that is the point, isn't it? So Because the only way that you're going to get businesses to be more successful is by having people spend more, which means they've got to have more money. And the only way I can have more money, unless I borrow from the bank, and that is a, you know, a short-term measure, is that I, uh, that I, uh, I have to pay less tax to the government. Uh, and if that means, I mean, if if I if the government taxes me less, then of course that would mean that the money that they were spending is now being spent by me. So that means no greater consumption, no more money in circulation, unless of course they they keep spending at the same amount, which is when you get a government deficit, which is when we have more money. I mean, pure and simple. That I mean, which is the MMT argument? Really. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, and and, and this is. Uh, what is so frustrating because economics and there's, there's the reason why does economics get itself and its knickers in a twist like this? And the basic reason is that they have a theory of the economy which leaves money out. So uh, if you go back and you know, right, I regard the fountainhead of of neoclassical 
uh, ideology and thought, uh, being Jean-Baptiste Say, who was one of the rivals to Ricardo uh, when Ricardo was developing his classical approach to economics. And Say was one of the somebody who said, uh, you know, value is utility. Was, Say was saying, no, value is effort. So they're completely at loggerheads. Um, but what we've accepted is Say's idea that people, that money is irrelevant. What we've got is basically money is a veil over barter. You get rid of the veil, you'll see what's going on more clearly. And uh, you can have an increase in the number of, of transactions at the barter level with no change in the amount of money. Now, that's a nice little theory. And as I think it was, it wasn't Bertrand Russell, but it was one famous writer who said, the great tragedy of science is a beautiful theory destroyed by an ugly fact. And the ugly fact is, when you look at the data over the long term, there's been no real economic growth without monetary growth at the same time. Well, the only way it could happen, isn't it, uh, is if uh, money is coming from elsewhere or the speed of money changes, the velocity of money changes, yeah. which we'll, we'll look at in a second. But just getting back to the idea, you know, that that pure um, GDP measure that it doesn't matter, matter whether you're measuring consumption or supply, they should both be the same. The money value in that is if money only changed hands once a year, then that should be the same as well, shouldn't it? it yeah. If, if, if your velocity is stable, then any change in your monetary value of GDP has got to be changed by the amount of the stock of money. Now, velocity is not stable, uh, but it isn't going in the right direction either. And uh, just by, by getting ready to talk about this, I found a data series I've never seen before uh, maintained by the Federal Reserve, but they don't update it anymore. And it's, uh, it's what's that title it here? It's Velocity of Money Stock for the United States. It's got a very obvious acronym. It's A14187USA163NNBR. So you're obviously going to remember that, and it's a very sensible acronym. Well, that peaked in 1880 at five. So the money stock in the United States back in 19, 1880, as they measured it here, turned over five times a year. So if you had a dollar, the, you'd, you'd, you'd pass that to somebody else, they'd pass it to someone else. That would happen five times in a year. Five times in one year, okay. Uh, and it, it's, it, it looks like a, a roller coaster ride going down rather than up. And it, uh, it, when they stopped running the series, which was in 1966, good date to choose, uh, it was down to 1.7. Yeah. Wow. So that's, you know, just pretty much, the, you know, one third the level of velocity it used to apply back in the uh, 1880s. And funnily enough, Karl Marx in, in Capital, at one time, he, he was aware of the issue of the turnover of money as being a source for making a profit. And this is what your friend is confusing. Uh, it's the turnover of money that generates profit, not the, not the money amount of money being created. And uh, but Marx was using a figure of twelve, and I used to scoff and just sort of you know laugh about being so far out of touch with the actual new America because I'm used to it being about in, in terms of the American data about one point eight was the average before the financial crisis and before the great actually before the great financial bubbles began back in the nineteen eighties. But five is in the ballpark of the twelve figure that uh, that Mark's using. So I think I owe Carl a bit of an apology. Right. Well, maybe so. Yeah. Maybe it was up to twelve at one point. Yeah. Exactly. So okay. So there's the. I like the. There might be worth. I mean, we talked about this once. It was probably like two years ago, or even four years ago. I've been doing this for so long. But I know, you gave, losing track. Yeah. You gave a, a great example of like the multiplier effect. So if you've got a static amount of money that's in the economy 
and everyone's earning and spending and it's you know it's it's not changing if you inject some cash you've got an opportunity to get get a multiplier happening out of this and you gave the example i think it was someone going into a town in the wild west or something i don't know if you can recall oh. this story where someone brings oh, in that that's a, that, that that's a classic little internet meme that one about a person going into uh, puts down deposit on a, on a on a hotel room i think it was and then the the concierge runs off and pays well first of all before that so that in the moment before we go on you there yeah. that money he's bought so it's a ta- it's the it's about the economy of a town uh, which yeah. isn't getting any new money until this visitor arrives and, and pays that 200 dollar deposit yeah. yeah and then that's an ejection into the economy in effect so, okay so carry on from there well then what do you have is that he, he puts you know, puts 200 dollars down reserving a hotel room the concierge runs off and pays his outstanding bill to the prostitute she goes and pays for rent the landlord goes and pays off part of the debt that he owes to the uh to the to the bank uh the bank issues a new loan. i think it's, i'm making a story more complicated than is the internet meme and then the bloke <laughs> comes back and uh and decides he's not going to stay so he gets his 200 bucks back and what happens he had a very high velocity of money for that period that paid off or that enabled a whole number of transactions to take place, which weren't possible before the money was injected into the system. And people say, how, how is this possible? And it's basically because we, we confuse the stock of money, which is dollars, uh, with its turnover, which is GDP, which is dollars per year. And if you have a sudden uh, boost in in the um in the dollar in the dollars per year, then that can give you a boost in income with no change in the uh, in the amount of money in existence. That's that's the answer to that particular internet uh, meme. But the reality is the opposite. That uh, except for the financial, except for uh, for COVID, when COVID struck, and also to some extent the uh, the financial crisis, um, the rate of uh, creation of money has been slowing down, and so has its velocity. Yeah, and so why is that? Why is it slowing? I think a large part of it comes down to the fact we've got such a financialized economy that people are in far more debt than was the case in the 1950s. When you look back at the capitalism's various phases, one of my old colleagues, actually, I've forgotten his name, David Levine, I think it was, wrote an article where he described the 1950s and 1960s as the golden age of capitalism. And in that sense, this is the sort of happy days world. And you look back and it's, it's true because people were spending money quite freely. You had one income earner in most households, the male, uh, wife at home sort of stuff. Um, but the, there was, you know, it was sort of the happy days level of prosperity and carefreeness. And there was quite a high rate of turnover of money, much higher than, uh, so like a bit 1.8 to 2 at that stage, I think. And it's been trending down towards 1.0. And ever since, at the same time as we've got a huge increase in private debt, and I think what's going on, people are looking at their their, their financial liabilities, the debt that they owe, because you know you borrow money from a bank, you get the money, but you also get the liability. And people's response to having that liability is to slow down how fast they spend, which means they individually. I think they're trying to accumulate more money in their bank accounts. Now, that works for the person who spends more slowly. But therefore means that the, the businesses that used to get that money don't get as much cash coming in the door. So they spend they they their accounts go down in response to people spending less. 
So you have a fall in velocity of circulation because everybody's worried about paying their debts off. Well, it's not just debt. It's not just debt, though, is it? It's also, you know, there'll be people who've got spare cash left at the end of the year and they say, okay, I'm going to put that into the pension or we're we're all putting money into private pension schemes as well now because, you know, because state pension schemes of, you know, worth diddly squat. Been destroyed. Yeah. So, uh, so all of that money goes into the finance sector as well. Now, some, now people would say, well, it doesn't matter if it goes into the finance sector, Steve and Phil, because uh, the, what does the finance sector do with it? It invests it, and that investment is going into business, and that's paying wages, so it all comes good at the end, which might be right. But, of course, that happens a lot slower than you giving me 10 quid and me you getting get, off and spending it. You get a lower – the finance sector spend – the, the, the amount of time it takes – Money to come out, of, you know, go into and come out of the finance sector is huge. It's a huge time lag. Whereas, as you say, if you're people spending in in Main Street and not having to worry about the financial system, there's actually more turnover of money, more creation of economic activity from the same dollar. So, yeah, we've we've fallen for a huge con job uh, that you know giving it to the finance sector will uh, will make the economy grow more rapidly. Instead, of, first of all, most of that money's gone into speculation on asset prices. It hasn't gone into genuine investment. And 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 secondly, it's it's it slows things down. It doesn't speed things up. And then the finance sector takes its cut. So uh, that's that. What, what what was that? Was the um, uh, the with Leonardo DiCaprio movie? Um, the beast, the, the, the wolf of Wall Street. The wolf Street. of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. You know where he's being. <laughs> it's a who's brilliant he film. To? Matthew, it was real, truly brilliant. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey doing the you know, beat on the chest thing in the uh, in the restaurant and saying it. You know, at this stage, you've got um, uh, Dick Capriccio's character being quite naive and saying, "Oh, but you know the customer benefits as well." And he says, "Yeah, they think they do. You've got to keep them in the market and persuade them to buy this." I'm just really selling penny stock. stocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every time we do it, we take our cut, and our money builds up, and theirs goes down. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a con job. Yeah, absolutely. All right, look, uh, and on that, that whole thing about money going into the finance sector. So, so someone complained. Um, I think it was from last week's podcast that. Uh, oh, there's always a complaint. There's always a well, you know, more so late. I mean, normally directed at me, but actually, this one was directed at you. Uh, so oh, you it was, <laughs> or both of us actually talking about M1 and M4, and they uh. said we tried to look it up and we're getting confused. So let's let's quickly before the break. Actually, we'll take a break. Uh, we'll keep that person listening through an ad. Uh, they can pay for the answer. Uh, and we'll look at the difference. And then I want to talk about, you know, other injections and and things that move out of the, the economy as well. So um, uh, almost like get, getting back to that GDP formula. We'll do that when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast. Me and Steve Keen, stay with us. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So we are looking at uh, the money supply. Can you actually grow an economy if the money supply stays the same? And I think hopefully we've shown in the first half, unless you find some magic formula to increase the speed at which money changes hands, the answer to that is no. You can't increase the output of a country uh, without increasing the supply of money. And then we started talking about how money goes into the finance sector. Uh, The only way around that, of course, is to increase the velocity of money. And actually, the opposite is happening money is is slowing down a lot of that is because it's going into the finance sector so m1 and broad money the definitions of all of these steve so m1 is basically cash on hand isn't it it's either cash you got in your pocket or cash you got sitting in your bank when we talk about broad money that's where we're starting to include money that is sitting in term deposits for example i guess We'd want to see if we wanted to, if we did want to. I'm imagining M1 money moves a lot faster than M4. So if you wanted to increase the velocity of your money in the, uh, the um, in your economy, then you want to increase the ratio of M1 to M4 money, wouldn't you? The proportion of, of M4 well, money let, that was let, actually M1. Let, let's let, let's go back a bit for that listener because money stocks are confusing, and one of the most confusing things about it, and I didn't realise this myself till about. 20 something years ago, I suppose, uh, that we, we have, there used, there used to be just three definitions. I think it was M0, M1, and M2. And M0 is not included in M1 and M2. That's something which, uh, mm. if you normally look at classifications, you think, oh, well, M0 is this amount, then M, M1 is M0 plus another thing, and M, no, that's not the case. And the right. reason for the So difference- I hadn't even mentioned M0, so that's another one. So, so explain the difference well, between all of those then. Well, M0, you normally think if you're somebody like working from a chemistry field or an engineering field, you'd imagine there's M0, M1, M2, then M0 is a restricted definition. M1 is slightly larger and M2 is larger than that, blah, blah, blah. In fact, it's not because there's money in circulation and there's money out of circulation. The, the widest way to think about money is that it's cash and coins plus uh, the deposit accounts of the private banking system. Now, that's the liabilities of the banking system, which is the bank accounts, and it's the liabilities of the uh, Federal Reserve and the and the um, Treasury because they respectively create coins and notes. <clears throat> Actually, the other way around, I think it's the the Federal Reserve creates the notes and the and the Treasury creates the coins. It's a strange little divided responsibility that virtually every country has. So it's the liabilities, the notes and coins, liabilities of the Treasury stroke um, central bank and bank deposits, liabilities of the banking system. Now, balancing those liabilities are the assets of the other, uh, those three entities. (laughs) Pardon me. And the assets of the banking sector consist of their deposits that they have at the central bank, the bonds they own, and the loans they've made to you, me, and everybody else in the in the economy. So the and, and also the cash that they've got sitting in auto banks and vaults and stuff like that. So M0 is the cash that's held by the uh, by the banking system. M M1 is the money that's in circulation within the uh, private sector, so the non-bank sector. So that's things like again, that's cash, the coins and cash that you've got, plus check accounts because there used to be a big difference between 
cash check accounts, which were called demand deposits, meaning you could go up to the bank and say, I want this money now, or you could give somebody a check um, on your using your, your checkbook, which we all used to own, and that check would be cleared instantly by the bank. There'd be no time lag, whereas savings accounts were supposed to be slower, and therefore savings accounts were uh, treated as being part of M2. So you have M0, which fundamentally talks about money that is not in circulation, created and on the on the asset side of the either the banking sector or the government, but not in circulation in the economy. M1, which is money that's in circulation in the economy and in, in immediately available accounts for people to spend. And then M2, which used to be more slowly uh, accessible, but and, and then M1, M2 included M1. Uh, but M2 now, I mean, people don't even know that they have a distinction between savings accounts and check accounts. We all use yeah. our bank accounts. They're almost for- the same thing. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But okay. But then when you get into term deposits, that's where you start to get into the, the M3s and M4s then. That's money which is which is yours, mm-hmm. but you don't have instant access to it. Yeah. Uh, well, not a, not a, but again, people, uh, what, what tends to happen during a boom is they become more and more liquid. And so they, they, they and you then get people basing transactions on them. So that, uh, gives you a, apparently more money in circulation, but as soon as uh, there's a downturn, then the s- banks can slow down how fast you can access that money. People are less willing to accept it, so you get a, uh, a you know a variation in velocity coming out of it as well. So and, and and the 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 progression, the other side of the confusion over money is that banks don't like being restricted. They're the ultimate libertarians. They want to do what they damn well like. And when they do that, we have a financial crisis most times as a result of it. So governments, after financial crisis, particularly after the Great Depression, basically said banks cannot use their money for any purpose they want. So in the 1920s, banks could purchase shares on the stock market. And that's partly where the huge bubble in stock market prices came from, then the crash afterwards. So after that period, banks, retail banks, banks that you and I have our deposit accounts were banned from buying shares. And that's why banks created non-bank financial institutions to let them speculate on all that sort of stuff. Then people have deposits with those accounts. And, and so they used to have M0 and one and M2. Then we got M3. Then we got M4. Then they had broad money. Then to a large degree, a lot of the statistical agencies have given up on, on tracking money numbers at all. So uh, so the, the, the lower the number, excluding M0, the lower the number, then the faster the, the, the speed you'd assume on that money. So if you were trying to speed up the GDP for a country to try and ramp up uh, consumption, you'd want to try and discourage people from having money sitting in anything higher than M2 which would mean lower interest rates, presumably, sort of like, and, and some sort of incentive to, to drive consumption, which if you had a digital money supply, you might say, well, okay, the, we're going to make, the money's only going to be valid for a certain period of time. So you have to, you have to spend, up, spend up quick. I mean, there's ways of getting that velocity up, aren't well, there? Well, that's in fact one reason for the, what's called the, the miracle of, uh, of Warble, Wargle, I think it's W-R-G-L, yeah. okay, which is the yeah. town, town in Austria, town in Austria yeah. during the Second World War, which had the same unemployment rate as the uh, the rest of the of Europe, with about 25% of people out of a job, rising right-wing sentiment, of course, coming out of that. And the mayor of Wargal was a fan of Silvio Gazelle, who was an Argentinian, I think, businessman who got involved in talking about monetary theory, got great respect from Keynes. And his argument was, you want money to turn over rapidly. So the way to do it is to 
have money which depreciates if it's just sitting in a bank account not being used. So what the mayor of Wargal did was create a script which could be used to pay council rates and then also could be regarded as valid for commercial transactions in the municipality of Wargal. And what happened was this script, because if you didn't spend it, it depreciated, turned over at an incredible rate and drove the unemployment rate from Wargal from 25% down to zero. And then in came the central bank and banned it because you know, we're the only ones allowed to create uh, official money. So they ended the, un- the experiment, which put Vogel back into the 25% unemployment levels. And lately, it wasn't too long before they were saying Heil Hitler. So uh, it is a real example of how gazellian money, which depreciates, and of course that's to some extent what inflation does, actually encourages a higher rate of turnover. Right. So if money is depreciating just by you know, by its very nature, uh, and you have constrained the money supply, then you are actually uh, you'll just see an economy slide. No, no, the other so, way, the other way, because if you, well, you've got to be creating the, the additional money as well. This is what the uh, Wargle experiment did. Yeah, See, but, but if but it, it, the stuff you've got depreciates, you then spend it very highly, and then you won't need to get the next injection and the next injection. So it relies upon the combination of the two. But if you didn't do that and you just had a static money supply, money will, uh, it, you know, you're going to get some sort of inflation happening within the economy for whatever reason. People people just might just naturally assume that things are going to cost more. You're going to you're going to see prices. Even if it's ever so slight, ever so slow, if you've constrained the money supply, your consumption is going to get less. Prices will slowly increase. You've still only got the same amount of money supply. You're going to, you know, at the best, the economy is going to be static. In reality, the economy is probably going to slide. In, in fact, it, it, what you get is sliding prices and sliding transactions. And this is one of the, which is slightly off topic what we're talking about today, but one little paper I've written, which I'm going to be distributing, I think, through Substack and uh, Patreon shortly, uh, is looking at what I call Fisher's paradox. And that was that Fisher said one of the reasons that the Great Depression was so extreme was that people uh, were you know, massively in debt. They borrowed money to gamble on the stock market. Stock market crashes, business collapses. People's response was to try to pay their debts down. But as they paid their debts down to the banks, that also reduced the money supply. And Fisher said, because the reduction in prices and the reduction in transactions are a double whammy, the more debtors pay, the more they owe. And I've simulated that in Minsky and found that he's quite right, that as you have people trying to pay their private debt down, that reduces GDP by more than it reduces the outstanding debt uh, levels. So even as transactions are falling, the debt to GDP ratio is rising. And uh, you don't want to, that's deflation. You don't want to be caught in that particular trap. But the idea of the gazellian currency is a currency which depreciates, but you have to therefore continue replenishing it. Well, in this non gazellian world, uh, where yeah. we are, where we find ourselves with a government that is trying to reduce the supply of money by. Um, you know, by running a surplus, yeah, by running, by a, running surplus. a surplus, exactly. Uh, so they, you know, are pushing for greater productivity, which they're never going to achieve. So, for example, all this talk about automation—that's an interesting thing, isn't it? We'll have fewer people employed, but companies might be more productive. The companies that are well automated, but their output still has to be sold 
but you can only sell to people who have the money to buy. So if you've got less people who've got money, but your uh, then your market is going to be smaller. All the rich would have to buy everything that you you produce. So that creates a quandary as well, doesn't it? You could actually see in that does, in that scenario, yeah. automation might actually make the economy slide because there's less people with money to buy your stuff. Yeah, and and also to to invest in the automation. Guess what? You've got to have money. Um, and you know, so you either borrow the borrow the money or you have it out of retained earnings. And the latter is only going to be feasible if you have a high rate of turnover of money and creation of money by the government. So, again, you've got this, you know, this is why they make the red tape versus green tape. Uh, cutting red tape is fine. Cutting green tape is disastrous. But because uh, governments have fallen for mainstream economics uh, and they believe the government uh, deficit actually takes money away from the public, which is the exact opposite of the truth. It injects money into private bank accounts. Because they're trying to take to run a surplus and save money, they're actually destroying the money the rest of us are used to spending, and therefore people are less likely to spend, so the economy slows down. So you, you, it's, it's, you, know, you watch this stuff, and it, it's, it's just insane uh, to see. So historically, because, okay, so money, the money supply has to increase. For, for the economy to grow, the money supply has to increase. That means either uh, people borrowing more from banks or the government spending more than it's bringing in in taxation. But historically, what's happened? So the, the, so the mint and the treasury, whoever's creating notes and whoever's creating coins, you know, the conventional form of money printing, before we had uh, electronic banking, before everything was sitting on a spreadsheet, presumably the way back then was that they would just print more money depending on how much they'd like to see in circulation. But how was that accounted for in the past? That is actually what they call seniorage. It's got a complicated definition because um, seniorage, uh, people would think it's like if it costs you five cents to print a dollar note, then the seniorage is 95 cents. But the way the Bank of England defines it, and I think this is common to central banks, is they define it as the interest on the amount of money they've created. So they create a dollar, a, a pound note. If the interest rate is 5%, they call the seniorages 5% rather than the whole pound. But I think fundamentally, uh, when, when you look at the accounting of this, if you are creating uh, banknotes, which uh, when you create them, they're an asset for you, they've got a cost of production. Um, the, the, so when the Bank of England creates banknotes, literally printing money, then I would uh, regard that as being, let's say they create a, a billion pounds uh, and the billion accounts cost, say, and this is an exaggeration, billion pounds costs a million pounds to produce, then there's a, a, a 999 million pound increase in the equity of the Bank of England out of doing that. But then when the notes are in circulation, of course, when people ask for the notes, you then have banks uh, asking to buy the notes because they need the notes to hand out through auto tellers and things like that. So they would then sell a bond and the bond would, um, uh, you know, they, they didn't get, say, a billion dollars uh, increase in their reserves and then give that billion dollars in reserves to the Bank of England in return to a billion dollars worth of notes, which then turn up in their vaults and then that gets taken out by the public. It's complicated, isn't it? It is. Um, well, but- I feel like there's a whole a whole episode on this in itself. But I mean, it's so the extra the extra money that's gone into circulation, is it, is it actually money where people are paying to to have that cash? Uh, then that's not new money, is it? That's just that's just a transfer. But they must have in the past been saying, well, okay, we feel like there needs to be more money in the economy. So if they're doing that, are they just are and it, it's sitting on the ultimately sitting on their balance sheet? Is it a bit like a paper equivalent of quantitative easing in that respect? Well, yeah, I mean, but what it's it's a paper equivalent of running a deficit. 
And this is this is you know the government. If you, you know, this is one time where I, normally I object to MMT's argument about consolidating the central bank and the treasury, but I think it makes sense when you're trying to talk about things like notes. So if you imagine the government prints notes and then spends those notes, uh, that is uh, that is creating money, injecting into the economy, and increasing economic activity because people then you know, give the government goods in return for that money, then they've got that money, which then can be turned over in the in the private sector economy as well. But there's no difference, is there, between the government saying, well, we're going to create a note. We're going to create a trillion dollar note. Uh, there's no difference to that and saying we're going to issue a trillion dollars worth of bonds and then the central bank buys them up, buys up those bonds. I mean, it's, it's the yeah, same. I mean, well, there's, there's, there's a thing, I think they're not called concert. I, I looked at them some time ago, and I've forgotten the name now. But there is a British note which backs the the the, the pound notes produced by the Bank of Scotland. I don't think it's called a console, but it's something like that. And that's got a face value of a hundred million pounds. And uh, you know, I'd love to go shopping with those. But they simply sit in um, what's called Threadneedle Street in the Bank of England. You can't take them out of there. But they one for one balance the pounds. You know, twenty-five pound, twenty-pound notes, and ten-pound notes, and so on, created in Scotland by the bank. Is it the Royal Bank of Scotland that does that? The strange Scottish notes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that that's that's the sort yeah. of case of it, it's it's it'd be, everything in banking is assets and liabilities. So the fact that the the Royal Bank of Scotland Scotland creates these pound notes is backed by the asset that is then held by the. And if, right, if the only, you can't do this. You can't do this verbally. You've got to have. Right. And I feel like a, it's a bit of a rabbit hole when we're going down here. It gets a very. Of, and like even I get confused. <laughs> I'm trying to look at double entry bookkeeping tables in my head. By the way, I think like, it's. I think also Clyde's. I think it's not just the Royal Bank of Scotland. I think Clyde's bank creates notes as well. Then then these tied to yeah, one the, particular yeah, bank. Bank. yeah, but anyway. Yeah. So and moving on to where how else money can be created. So uh, if we're looking at the UK, for example, and this again gets back to the GDP equation, exports obviously help. So I think I'm an example here. I mean, I live in England, but the majority of what I earn comes from Australia. So almost all the money I spend is incremental to the UK money supply, isn't it? Because, you know... That's very true. Yeah. What, and this is one reason I object to one. Like the, I completely agree with MMT when it comes to discussing the government's capacity to create money in its own currency. But they have this, in my opinion, crazy line, exports are a cost, imports are a benefit. And they wave away the impact that this has on the on the domestic money supply. But in your case, you're being paid in Australian dollars. Um, they That gets transferred from an Australian uh, bank to a bank in the UK, which then hands those Australian dollars to the Bank of England in return for British pounds at the equivalent exchange rate. So fundamentally, you're boosting the, the British money supply uh, by being paid out of Australia. Yeah. So, which is a good thing. Rather sad, though, isn't it? For Britain. For Britain, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But rather sadly, of course, uh, I'm a rare example because we, well, we export services in the UK. So I think I'm trying to find- Which is what you're doing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so we've got a, a, a services surplus of 39 mil- billion, but a goods trade deficit for goods of 48 billion. So more mm. of our money is actually going overseas. So unless we do something about it, getting back to Rishi Sunak, unless we do something about it, actually- You're running um, out of money. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Our money supply is shrinking. So therefore, there's less money to spend. Therefore, the the economy goes down the gurgler. And so then you, you, what you would need in that case is a government to be doing the opposite and running a deficit. What are they doing? They're trying to run a surplus. 
So, you know, and, and so what you've got is, you know, you have three fundamental ways you can boost the money supply in the country. You can have exports exceeding imports. So you, you get the sort of cash injection you're creating by uh, by loudmouth. Um, you can you can have the government spending more than it gets back in in taxation. And of course, they're trying to they're, they're doing that, but they're trying to do the opposite. Or you can have banks lending out more than they get back in repayments. Now, if they were lending for productive industry, wouldn't be so bad. Uh, but what they're normally lending for is house price bubbles and share price bubbles. So yeah, you're, you're not that, adding, but that does, but yeah. I know, which is not ideal, is it? Because it slows things down. Um, but I mean, it's still new money, isn't it? But then it's so even if I um, went and, and you know borrowed money to buy a house, which I have to pay more for than I would otherwise because the bank is lending too much money for people buying houses. So you get an, an asset bubble. They're still selling the house at that high price to somebody else who's getting that money. So the money is still in circulation. It's just perhaps moving slower and we're all you know paying a ridiculous price for our houses. It's still creating money. But it's, it's still only temporary though, isn't it? Because at some point I'll pay that back and then that money gets destroyed again. Well, potentially, but that, that when that happens, you have a credit crunch, and that's uh, you know we had back in two thousand eight on a grand scale. But like it's it's a very this, this, when you look at how Sean Payton thought banks did operate or should operate, he saw them creating money for entrepreneurs and creating you know it's a, everybody gets their money out of the circulation of existing activities except the entrepreneur who's got a great idea but no money. So they get money from a bank that adds to the level of economic demand in the economy. And so long as various conditions are met about you know, the, uh, the entrepreneurial idea uh, not boosting in the prices more than it boosts total turnover of goods, et cetera, et cetera, the entrepreneur comes out ahead, so ahead and so does the economy. But that's not what's happening. We, we have the, basically we have the private banking sector is financing asset bubbles. And the government is trying not to create any money at all. And then they're telling the private sector to grow. Which is strange, isn't it? Because the you know even if you just went to your very first economics lesson and then lost interest or thought it was all rubbish, you'd probably do that equation for GDP, which is you know all about, well, what's the GDP for a nation? It's you know, how much money we, we spend buying stuff, how much companies invest in equipment, which is, which is coming from you know those loans that we're talking about how much the government spends on whatever it's doing and what our foreign trade balance is. And so out of all of that, the government seems to be saying, well, okay, all of those are fine, but we don't want to, you know, we can't do anything about foreign trade balance. We don't want to spend any more as a government. We would like uh, companies to invest more uh, because that's going to help them to uh, increase their output. And we'd like people to spend more, which gets back to our fundamental question. How do you spend more? If you haven't got enough money, if you haven't got any more money sitting in your bank account, yeah. So the, first and foremost, Richie Sunak is stuck in the rhetoric world yet, yet again, uh, and it's this you know exhortations and get you to become more productive. Uh, no, you need money, and uh, and you have to be encouraging that money to be spent in investment or skills development because a lot of this you're not going to be using this new technology unless you are part of the information system learning how to use the technology and being able to develop it rather than having to import it. So you, you need uh, you know inf- you need investment money and you need money for education and he's trying desperately not to provide either. Yeah. You need to increase the money supply. Very simple. Mm. All right. I mean and obviously if you increase the money supply too much too fast then you do get an inflation problem. 
You get a potential but, or whatever. This is one little, I mean, I've had this fight so many times. I've, I've just thought I'm going to have a bit of fun and take over the National Rifle Association's line. And, of course, they have that line that says that uh, guns don't kill people, people kill people. So I'm going to have money doesn't create inflation, people create inflation. And that's true because the, uh, the, the extent to which uh, firms are going to be willing to put up their prices will depend on 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 the, by putting up their markups will depend on how buoyant they think the economy is. And when you look back at the data for the for the pandemic, what happened there was a dramatic increase in government money. And that's we might as well actually give some numbers on that front. We've been talking around this, but haven't actually spoken about it. But there was an enormous increase in the level of uh, M1 money in America, almost by a factor of six during the uh, pandemic. Uh, when you look at the uh, the broad money, uh, you started, let's just get the, the number here for the America. In January of 2020, there was $15.4 trillion in broad money. That's January. And we go to uh, April, let's go to September. So you went from 15.4 at the beginning of the year, I'll go through to the end of the year, to 20. There were 25% increase in the amount of money. Now, at the same time, the impact of that was a dramatic, it, it, it kept the economy going through that period because people could pay their financial commitments with it. But you had a corresponding, not, not quite, but a dramatic fall in the velocity of money circulation. Because they couldn't spend so, on stuff. Yeah. And then the inflation spend, yeah. happens because what money there is swilling around, well, the government is spending it trying to buy um, um, equipment to help combat, you know, PCE and stuff like that, uh, or PPE, I should say. Um, and, you know, so obviously price of PPE goes up. Same as if you've got demand for anything, if the, if the government... But, but that, that, if that the, again comes back to the who create The government, the money in circuit, the additional money enables the thought of putting up your markup, but the person that puts the markup is normally a member of the House of Lords. <laughs> well, it certainly was in that case, wasn't it? Uh, but I mean, that mm. is the problem. If you, if you create the extra money, who's getting the money and what are they going to spend it on? And if all of them want to spend it on, it, and it happens suddenly and they all want to spend it on something in which there's a shortage of supply, then of course you're going to get inflation. So it has to be managed well, but you have to increase the money supply if you are going to get economic growth. That's the takeout, isn't it? Yeah. And hopefully we've explained it simply, Steve. I think we have this week for once. Uh, and <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> have to see what our, what, our, what our critic writes back to us and says. All right. Anyway, good to catch you again. Catch you next week. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.